Well, hey, everybody. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. We're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Every single conversation I've had has changed my views of things, have influenced me in the present. There's very little nostalgia here. There are people who are continuing to do work, continue to think, and trying to talk about, obviously, a pivotal experience for an entire generation. But most of the people here on the 50th anniversary are on the 50th anniversary of their organizing. So in that context, we're really happy to have Julian Bond with us, who's been a very important figure in the civil rights, black liberation, progressive movement. He was obviously one of the leaders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which we'll talk about. He was elected to the Georgia State Legislature and denied admission, and that became a very important coastal ever. And you might not think that people of those politics would run for office. And then he's moved through many, many different incarnations, and I believe you were chairman of the board of the NACP. And on the 50th anniversary of SNCC, I think you gave a really terrific oh, thank speech. Thank you. Worked hard on that. It was a very thoughtful effort at the struggle of black people and where are they now. So in that context, Julian Bond, really nice to be with you. Well, good to be here. Thank you for this. What was the pivotal moment in your life when you went from believing in things to thinking you had a real obligation to act? Well, it must have been in 1960 when a student approached me in a cafe in Atlanta and held up a newspaper to me and said, have you seen this? I thought he was talking about, do you read the paper? But he was talking about an article about the Greensboro sit-in and prompted me to join him in repeating that here in Atlanta. And that's, that's when I took my first big step. So that was quick. Yeah. You saw a picture and you organized a sit-in. Right, exactly. How were you treated? Pretty well. Atlanta was a relatively moderate place in race relations. If you got outside the city, you're in real trouble, but right. on the, within the city limits, it was okay. So the police acted as you want policemen to. Nothing really harmful, but it was a good introduction to activism for me. Now, I make a distinction between activism and organizing because, to me, activism is an act of participation. Organization becomes a long-term commitment and actually building an institution. When did you think you made the transition from seeing yourself as an activist to someone who wanted to build an institution like SNCC? Shortly after the incident I just told you about, and it's interesting because I got involved in the sit-in demonstrations believing that would be a relatively short-lived act process. Right, right. But I joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee believing that would be relatively short-lived, but longer than the sit-ins. Right. And didn't think it would last forever for the rest of my life, and of course it didn't, uh, but thought that would be a little longer lasting. Then I joined the NAACP, which was already ancient at that time, and is over 109 years old now. Uh, so that was another example of longevity with an organization. And uh, I'm not really associated with any organization right now, but still I'm doing many of the things I was doing in those other organizations. Well, let's go back to relationships with some pivotal fi figures, okay? Ella Baker. Ella Baker, I was thinking about her today. We saw a picture of her after the screen when we were talking about those who passed away. Ella Baker lived in an apartment building in Atlanta called the Walla Haji. It was named after the people who built it, whose names were Wallace and Hodges, hence Walla Haji. And she had a very small apartment there. And I remember visiting her in her apartment and her taking out a 
I think, a quart of uh, bourbon, which was welcome to me at the time. I was drinking bourbon at the time. Uh, and she was just a remarkable person. And peculiarly, or maybe not peculiarly, I could never call her Ella. Many of the women who worked for SNCC called her Ella. But I called her Miss Baker. She was always Miss Baker to me, and she always will be Miss Baker to me. And she was such an expert at saying to you, not do this, but have you thought of doing this? And there's a great difference between those two things. And she was just a master at it. Well, even though it's an archetypical story, it is very important that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee came together as just a coordinating committee at first of that there were a lot of sit-ins, and wouldn't it be good if we sort of all got together and had a mutual strategy, right? Because she understood, Ella Baker understood, that we might not have the experience, might not have the thought to do this in an organized way. Or we might have, but if we didn't, wouldn't it be better if we develop it one, develop ourselves, and can't you develop it yourselves? She never said do this or do that. She always said, don't you think you might do this? And the story is that she encouraged Dr. King to not make this an adjunct of SCLC. Right. And the students, she also encouraged the young people not to not to become an adjunct of SCLC or the NAACP right. or Core. the Rich Equality or any of these organizations. Why don't you make one of your own? And we made one of our own. Amazing contribution to history, right? Yeah. Um, James Foreman. I can't remember when I met Foreman for the very first time, but... I met him when he was fresh from Monroe, North Carolina, where he'd been to talk to Robert Williams, who was NAACP president, who yeah. returned Klan fire with black fire. Um, and he was fresh from that and came to Atlanta to meet people in this new phenomenon called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And very quickly we understood that in part because of his age, he was older than we were, and part because of his wisdom, that he'd make a great director of this organization, and we prevailed on him to take it, and bam, there he was. He came out of the service? Yes, he came out of the service, and I think his service period was an example of building for him, learning new things for him in ways we did not have. Almost none of us had been in the service, and almost none of us went in the service. I never did, but uh, I thought he, this was some training for him that he had that advanced him above the level where we were. I've read some old documents. He did a lot of writing about the theory of organizations and how could SNCC function and gave a lot of attention to the actual building of an yeah. organization. Um, Malcolm X. I have never met Malcolm X for longer than a period of, hello, how are you doing? Good to see you. Uh, so I can't say I knew him in any real sense of the word, but I was around him on a couple of occasions and had saw him operate and watched him operate and grew to understand that here's a man who had a, a real idea of, of how to go about things, how to plan, how to, how to go from here to there in a way that I think young, younger people didn't quite know. Uh, so he was just such a remarkable man. It was a thrill to be around him. And one of the great things I remember about him is it, him saying to a crowd, not to me, but to a crowd, he said, man, those people in the Southern Movement made me look funny. He said, they're really onto something. So, you know, you appreciate that kind of uh, pat on the back. Like another one we got from <laughs> President Kennedy. You get this on the White House t tapes. He's talking to his advisors during the Birmingham campaign, complaining about something that happened in, in Birmingham the night before. And he says, those snake people are sons of bitches. I love that. That's right. That's one of the best compliments. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. I, again, I, I did know Ms. Hamer more than I knew Malcolm X. She was just such a pleasant person, such an outgoing person who didn't have much formal education, 
but was so outreaching, sort of person you felt you could be with, you could be close to, you could learn from her, you could be a part of her. She was just remarkable in that way. She was open to you. That was her genius, I think. Then another one of her geniuses was laying out very pithy formulations that you would remember and act on. Yes, indeed. You know, like she came to the Newark Community Union Project, and we had a second floor office, and she walked in and said, if I come back next year and you don't have a storefront, you'll never see me again. <laughs> and we got a storefront. I mean, then she yeah. said, well, how are you expecting people to climb stairs? And we hadn't thought of it, you know. Yeah. She wasn't the only person. Then she came in and gave a three-hour presentation right. about her negotiations with Walter Ruther, mm -hmm. Bayard Rustin, even King, mm -hmm. Humphrey. And, of course, the line was, they literally, Bayard Rustin pointed to Humphrey and said, Miss Hamer, if you take the compromise, Hubert Humphrey could be vice president of the United States. And she said, with all due respect, I didn't come up all the way from Mississippi to make you vice president of the United States. I thought you wanted to be vice president of the United States to seat the people from Mississippi. Yeah. And then she turned to us and said, there's two lessons here. One, compromise is not a bad word. But one party wins the compromise and one party loses. And if they offered us a winning compromise, I would have taken it. Number two, never sign on to anything that you cannot take to your base in good conscience yeah. because you are representing people. And if you come back and say, I didn't get it, they don't mind. But if you said, I gave it away, you'll be in big, big trouble. Exactly so. And that's what I teach. It's, I mean, it's totally changed my understanding of organizing. And I've been in situations, in negotiations, where I realized, no, we're going to bring it back to the group, and if the group doesn't want it, we're not going to do it. Yeah. Did you play an active role in the MFTP? No, not really because of James Foreman. This is a funny story. We had, uh, I don't know if the order was this hurt, but Snick took a trip to Africa, mm. and I went. And uh, the trip to Guinea. And some people, John Lewis and Don Harris, went further than right. other African states. But I was with a group that only went to Guinea and then went to Paris and then came back to the States. That was, I think, just before the convention in Atlantic City. And so Foreman told me I couldn't go because I had gone to Africa. And a little while I'm later sorry. I realized that he went to Africa, <laughs> so why couldn't I go too? No, that sounds like James Foreman too. Let's talk about your uh, candidacy for the legislature of Georgia. I think one of the things that's fascinating about that is people didn't understand that we had a pretty multifaceted understanding of what we were doing. We were not just protesters. We had a strategy. And obviously they were seen as an opportunity to get you elected. I think most of our listeners and viewers don't even know this story. So how did this happen? This came about because a federal court had reapportioned the Georgia legislature. Georgia had a most malapportioned legislature of all the states in the United States. And it meant that rural areas had enormous power, urban areas where the population was had relatively little power. And so a court order reapportioned the legislature, and I found myself living in the middle of one of these new districts of equal size with other districts, and it meant that black people would be elected to the House of Representatives in Georgia for the first time since Reconstruction, wow. as long ago as that. So I ran for one of these districts, and I won. A friend of mine, uh, Ben Brown, who sadly has died, uh, ran in the adjacent district. Uh, we were very close, and he won his, and I won mine, and we were all set to take our seats. Uh, we knew that we would meet hostility by white legislators who didn't want black people in the legislature, but we didn't expect any trouble about this, just some reaction. But then, just before we were to take our seats, 
the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee issued an anti-war statement, which if I told you about it today, you'd say, oh, people say that all the time now. Right, right. But then it sounded radical and extreme, and it caused a great deal of hoorah in the general population, and the legislators were just outraged that we would dare to have opinions about foreign policies, and the opinions would be contrary to theirs. So as the date for my uh, taking my seat arrived, the opposition began to bubble and rise up, and when the day for me to take my seat came, legislators-to-be decided to put me out of the legislature. They declared my seat vacant and called for a new election. And I ran for in that election, and I won that election, and they called me out of the legislature again. I ran again for a third time, and in the interim, I filed a lawsuit, uh, and it was heard by a three-judge federal court, and the two judges appointed by President Kennedy voted against me, and the judge appointed by President Nixon voted for me. Wow. Because this was just at the time when the Republican Party was in the middle of some transition, and the Democratic Party was in the middle of some transition, too. At, at any rate, I appealed the decision to the Supreme Court, and I had never been to the Supreme Court, so I went up to hear my case being argued. And I found myself sitting in the front row of the spectator seats next to uh, Victor Rabinowitz, who was my lawyer. Oh, really? His law partner was Leonard Boudin. Oh. He was arguing the case for me. And so I'm sitting next to Victor Rabinowitz and listening to the Attorney General of Georgia argue that they had a right to throw me out, that I had said things that were contrary to, to American public opinion and therefore ought to be thrown out of the legislature. And something remarkable happened. I'd never been to the Supreme Court before, and I didn't understand that the justices would interfere right. with lawyers. And Justice Byron White, uh, who was well-known as Wizard White because he was the only Supreme Court justice who played for the NFL. That's right. And he, he said to the Attorney General, to his argument, he said, is that all you have? He said, that's all you have? You've come all this way and that's all you have? <laughs> so I, I hunched uh, Victor Rabinowitz. I said, we're winning now, aren't we? He said, yes, you are. And we won nine to nothing. Nine to nothing. Well, it's very important to know that that's a beautiful story. And it's also important that Victor Rabinowitz is a story unto himself. Yes, Leonard Boudin, you had gold. You yes. had two of the greatest civil rights lawyers, yeah. most brilliant. So when you're just you know, dropping ACLU, the name. ACLU wouldn't support me, wouldn't defend me because I had them. <laughs> you know, that's well, me, the people control, helping my civil liberties. But I didn't, apparently didn't have the civil liberties to choose a lawyer of my own choosing. Or lawyers that were closer to the Communist Party. Yes, right. Bill Kunstler and Arthur Conoy, the same, were the two greatest lawyers I knew at the yeah. time. But you were very fortunate to have Victor Rubinowitz and Leonard Boudin, who were only two of the truly greatest civil rights lawyers in the United States at the time. Oh, yeah, they were just fabulous. I couldn't have chosen anybody as good as they were. And I want to go back a step about what when you ran in the district, because you won three times, you know, as they always say, let's keep running the election until we get it right. You know, yeah. <laughs> right? So what did you talk to the people about in this predominantly black district? Well, first I laid out a platform. And then I went around to them, asking them how they liked my platform and what I could change in my platform, do better, do worse, right, or whatever. Right. And I can't remember it all. It's been so long ago. But one thing was to increase the minimum wage in Georgia to, I think, a dollar fifty, which is nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. Um, but anyway, it was a fairly well thought out and vetted campaign platform, vetted with my constituents. I asked them what they want. What do you think about this? Is this okay? Is this a good idea? Right. Do you like that? Or so on. And they were just astounded because they had never had somebody ask them these questions before. They had never elected a legislator from this district. It never happened before. A district this small. And whomever they had had before in the larger district, 
that preceded my district, they never had anybody ask them what they wanted. So I think it was an innovation for them as it was for me. So that's what I, that's the way I campaigned. Well, at the time, we were very moved by the concept of participatory democracy, mm -hmm. right? And I was organizing in Newark and, and SNCC. I think we had a vision of a revolutionary democracy sure. in which the actual people at the grassroots would be asked for once. And, I, and then the question was, could the people, after they're asked, get enough power to win? So I want to jump in a funny way after the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party because I'm very interested in this period of all the choices that people made after the MSDP. Uh, obviously, Stokely moved to the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, and, which I thought was pretty exciting, to, which people don't know, to build an actual base on the grounds. But over a year, they were trying to do it. Other people moved in more, quote, revolutionary directions. Other people moved in more nationalist directions. Other people moved to reform the Democratic Party and say, no, it's not automatically the end of this conversation. First, what of those past, what were you thinking at the time? And it helped me, since I think you and I are always trying to keep everybody in one, why can't we all get along, politics yeah. is me. Like, yeah. I understand this difference, yeah. and, but is this really what we're going to break up over? So where were you, and then what were your efforts to try to build a broader civil rights black movement at the time? I didn't try to build the Democratic Party in a different direction. I wish now I had. I'd done something to create a political party of some kind with some relevance to what people really needed and what they wanted, but I didn't do that. I ran every two years as a Democrat. I won elections one after the other for 20 years, uh, worked in the House, got elected to the State House, got elected to the State Senate, uh, so that's what I did. Uh, and I didn't, I'm sorry to say, do as much as I could have done or should have done in Georgia itself. Instead, I traveled all over the country. I got invitations to speak here and there and someplace else. After the Chicago Political Democratic Party convention, I began to be inundated with invitations to go here and there and talk about things. And I generally talked about the war, had an anti-war attitude and, and argued against the war, and talked about race relations and, and what the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee could do, and what my listeners could do, what people could do themselves in their own neighborhoods, their own community. So that's why I spent almost the next, say, 20-odd years is doing that. Well, one of the things that I think, again, in terms of, I mean, both I've lived this history, but then I just study history every day, every yeah. day, including, of course, way, way back history. But I don't think people, again, understand the significance of a civil rights movement that took a, such a militant stand against the war. Yeah, no. And that from when SNCC came out with Hell No, We Won't Go, that has such a profound influence. I think that was the first time I consciously became anti-war. Then there was the SDS march on Washington in April of 65. There was Muhammad Ali's amazing campaign. There was King's campaign. But every one of those was met with such repression from King People don't realize that Ali was sentenced to five years in prison for draft evasion. So let's talk about that, the explosive intersection of the war and the civil rights, and those who are telling us, no, no, those are two separate issues. You know, it's interesting that today I met a man who had put on the first moratorium, and that meant something special to me because I met my wife-to-be at the first moratorium. So, and this guy who put on the first and second moratoriums told me an interesting history of the time between the first and the second. Between the first, the idea of the moratorium was simply to say there are many, many Americans that were against the war and they wanted stopped. And they'd be welcoming if this were happening. This is Nixon was president of the United States. 
from the first moratorium to the second moratorium, the repression just grew and grew and grew. Agnew was unleashed and began to attack the student protesters and so on in a vituperative way, the way he'd not done so before. And I didn't realize this. This guy's telling me this. Uh, and something else happened that showed the repression echoing up and uh, just showed what the war machine would do, the horrors it would do. So I had not understood this history before. It was just interesting to have him tell it to me. Uh, made me understand what was happening around me in a way I had not before. Well, in Bearing the Cross by David Garrell, there's just the whole section of what happened after the Vincent Harding, Martin Luther King speech at the Riverside. Right. It was, I believe, 1967. The extent of the attacks on King after he took the war position. Dramatic loss of money, dramatic loss of influence, and he was shocked. Yeah. But he sort of knew it was coming. So I just want to say that I don't think a lot of white people understand that so much of the anti-war movement was black. Yeah. And so much of the anti-war energy came out of what was perceived as the civil rights movement. What brought you to the NAACP? Well, I had, uh, SNCC had disappeared. Right. We think destroyed by the federal government. And there seemed to be no alternative to it. And I looked at the NAACP because in Atlanta, at the time, the NAACP was a vibrant, strong organization, a neighborhood-based organization, active in this, that, and the other things, on the march all the time. And it seemed to be the last man standing. And I said, I want to be a part of that. So I joined the NAACP, but I would not done much with the NAACP as a member, but only active in the sense that I paid my dues. I became engaged in it. I got elected chairman of the local NAACP. Then I got elected to the board of directors of the NAACP. I had a fight with the incumbent board chairman. He managed to throw me out of the NAACP. I fought back. Wait a minute, do you have a, a problem of getting thrown out of things? Yes. <laughs> anyway, he, he threw me out of the NAACP. Right. Uh, where was it? Oh, so anyway, so then I got elected chairman of the board, and I served as chairman of the board for 11 years. One of the things that to me is very interesting, again, about reading history is that in our, our meaning 64 to 68 experience, I think it's fair to say that SNCC and CORE, where I came from, we saw the NACP as a big obstacle. I saw it as a big obstacle, too, right. when I was young. Right. But I grew to understand it's sturdy, it's here, it's, if you go over here, it's really great, if you go over there, it's not so great. This one is wonderful, this one is not so. Well, the thing I, I understood the most, because I think Roy Wilkins was a very destructive force in history, is just my own opinion, mm -hmm. but when I read I've Got the Light of Freedom by Charles Payne, right. I was shocked to understand that the NACP had been the bulwark of the most deep south repressive areas, Amzie Moore, and people yes, had been right. building these NAACP chapters from the 30s and 40s had been facing lynching, and they had been sometimes armed. I mean, I changed my opinion of this, what I'm saying is yes. I said, you know, Me too. I said, you know, Eric, you had this little four-year window, but you didn't understand this history, right? Do you think that's fair? Oh, absolutely. One question I wanted to ask you is that one of the common themes of the conference this weekend was, yes, we've elected more black Democrats, but has there really been an improvement in the conditions of black people through that? And let's at least look at the Obama administration as one of the greatest victories in some ways. And I certainly think the election of Barack Obama was a historic event beyond anything that could have been comprehended. But how do you perceive now seven years into the Obama administration What's that model indicate for you? Well, it indicates to me that you've got to do more than elect the president. You've got to elect Congress people. 
and the movement I'm associated with, the movements I'm associated with, learn how to do the one, but never learn how to do the other. And, and really messed up when it came to the off-season elections. You know, they fell victim of the tales that are told us that in the off-season elections, the president's party always loses. Well, sure he does, but why does he have to? Why does that have to be so? Why can't we do better? Why can't this marvelous machine that elected Barack Obama, why can't it elect one or two people or 50 or 60 people in Congress of the United States? It's something that I think we need to learn how to do, and we haven't learned how to do it yet. But if we don't do it, I mean, we're doomed to just elect a lot of great presidents, and that's it. Well, my view is that even within the first year, I think he took the wind out of the sails of a lot of his people. And I think that with the shocking reaching out across the aisle, the horrible attacks on him that we all wanted to fight. It was like, come on, if you take them on, we'll take them on. And letting the Tea Party out of the grotesque racism against him as a president of the United States and the bailing out of Wall Street, not having a social program for the poor. Within a year, I was talking to a lot of people and they went, Okay, I'm glad he's elected, but I don't see him as our friend. See, I don't believe that an appeal to the President of the United States is going to help us. But by the time in the sixth year, it's very hard to tell people you got to elect congressmen when the election of a black president should have been a watershed, even if it wasn't completely. I, I, I agree with what you're saying, and I agree with your analysis, but I think it was a watershed. And I think the second election was more powerful than the first. Because the second election proved that the first was not a proof. That's right. It was just a wonderful, wonderful thing. I cried for that one. It was just great. Oh, I did too. I mean... I had plenty of disappointments. I'm sure I'm going to have some more. But I'm so happy he's there. Well, I'm in a very ambivalent relationship because my family, we were so excited about the first Obama. The second one was more of my strategic thinking coming. All right, I am not that excited. But we are not going to let... Mitt Romney get elected. We are not going to get the first black president defeated. And I went back with enthusiasm again, yeah, you know, with, with, the, with a little different it's understanding. It's right? bound to, to be this way every election. This is what to with every election. Right. Please say no. <laughs> well, last thoughts. There must be a lot going through your head yeah. on the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. So many people you've seen yes. reconstructing your own life. Share with me just a couple of things that's going on in your mind. You open this with saying that it's not just nostalgia. But a lot of it is nostalgia for me. To see old friends, to see old buddies, to see these people with whom I went through the most important years of my life uh, just means so much to me. I'm so happy to be here. I I, I don't want it to end. Uh, I know we just have, as of today, two more days. A day, just another one more day. I don't count Sunday. Uh, But... uh, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to, and I know that some of these people I'll never see again. That's right. As I don't see here some of the people I saw 30 when we did the 30th anniversary and as we're doing this one. So I feel sad about that. But um, I also see the young people who are here and think this is our future, and they are being educated in what they need to be doing. And many of the older people here, people my age and older, are continuing doing what they were doing. It's not like they're just sitting down saying, here, you take over. Uh, it's a it's standing up and saying let's do this together so I'm optimistic about this I've been an optimist all my life in spite of having common sense at the same time <laughs> but I believe you know we can do it whatever needs to be done we can do it I completely agree with you and I want to take back my nostalgia word because, okay. because I thought it was pejorative in ways I didn't mean yeah. because I think you're absolutely right that we're going back to a period that a new generation 
so far has not been blessed enough to go through right. and had a level of relationships to each other, mm-hmm. a level of personal risk, a level of personal transformation in which your own beliefs were challenged daily, mm-hmm. and relationships that were built under conditions that people couldn't imagine. So I, I definitely want to take back that because I think the reconnection mm-hmm. with our own history is a very critical part of it, and thanks for that reorientation. Okay, good. <laughs> and the last thing is, I think all organizers are optimists. Yes, I think you have to be. You have to be. Yeah. I mean, I wake, I go to bed upset. The next morning, I got a new idea. Sure. Whatever the problem was when I went to bed, I spent the night, okay, what, have we tried this? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I just think that's why we're going to win. Uh, indeed, you're absolutely right. Well, thank you so much, Julian Bonnet.